For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Thursday, November 30th. So many aspects of the movie-making process are misunderstood, not just by the public, even by people who work in the business. I'll be honest, I used to think the role of the casting director was basically to read scripts and then parade a bunch of actors in front of a panel like you've seen in movies. First of all, most of the casting process doesn't even take place in person anymore. It's a bunch of self-tapes and then a screen test or charisma read before making the final choices. And so much of it is about the relationship between the filmmaker and the casting director putting people in front of the director who align with his or her vision, and maybe bringing something they never saw in the character in the first place. The casting directors are the gatekeepers, the first arbiter of star power, whatever that means these days. The decisions are scrutinized online immediately in a way that just wasn't the case even 10 years ago, both positively and negatively. Denise Chamion has tons of those stories. She's a veteran casting director, one of the great ones. She's not only cast hundreds of films and shows, everything from Saving Private Ryan to the Pirates of the Caribbean movies to the Transformers movies, all the Michael Bay stuff. She's got TV shows like The Old Man and Mr. Mercedes lately. Last year, she did both Elvis and Top Gun Maverick. She wanted Austin Butler for the lead in Top Gun, and then she ultimately got him in Elvis when that didn't happen. We'll talk about those. She's also got thoughts on the recent actor's strike, the AI question, and whether actors will be replaced. What makes a lasting career in acting? So today is Denise Chamion, The Secrets of a Star-Making Casting Director. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Denise Chamion, who is a veteran casting director. I've wanted to do a casting episode for a long time, because I think there's just so many misconceptions about casting. It's such an interesting part of the Hollywood machinery. So first of all, thank you, Denise, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So let's just start it out with that question, because what are, from your perspective, some of the most common misconceptions about the casting process and how it all works? The biggest misconception is that actors magically appear in front of producers and directors. <laughs> we take a lot of time. We have a huge history with a lot of actors who read for us when they're very young. And we you meet these actors like when they're, you know, 15, 16 years old, and then maybe you don't 
cast them until they're 30. And that's exactly what happened with Austin Butler. You know, I. Oh, knew, you knew him early. I knew him early on. He had read for me for the Maze Runner trilogy. At the time, he just wasn't what the producers or the directors saw for the role. And then several years later, he read for me for Top Gun. And he was. Oh, which role? He read for Miles Teller's role. Oh, interesting. We were doing a huge search for the son. And he came in and he was phenomenal. He had changed so much. He had matured. He had really, his acting talent had strengthened. When I showed him to Tom, Tom agreed that he was going to be a big star, but that he was just too young. Hmm. So when Elvis came up, which was very soon after Top Gun, um, it was just obvious to me that he was going to be a contender for the movie. He was so right for it. You know, producers and directors don't necessarily know who these actors are. They recognize their talent when they come into the room, hopefully. Hopefully. Um, Yeah, sometimes they don't. (laughs) Sometimes they don't. It's funny because yesterday I was kind of like going through my resume just to see like, who were some of the actors that I cast in some of these? And I, I found that even if the movie was successful or not, the cast that I loved the most were the ones that directors and producers really recognized the talent of the people that I was bringing in. So give us an example of one of those. Of course, Saving Private Ryan is one. Right. I mean, so you saw I, Matt Damon pre-Goodwill Hunting, right? Stephen always knew that he wanted Matt for that mm. role. Okay. Um, and he knew that he wanted Eddie Burns. Mm-hmm. But for all the other roles, I had complete freedom and carte blanche to bring in whoever I wanted and basically shape those roles because a lot of the roles didn't have distinct voices. Some of them did, but others, there were a group of guys that we had to put together. And he just said, just do your thing. We had worked on a television series together very closely, one of the first ones for DreamWorks. And I kind of just went through the town and just saw as many guys as I could. And we shaped the role. No, Vin Diesel hadn't done anything at the time. I, I had seen him in this movie that he did a little short called multifacial mm-hmm. and i showed it to steven and he went okay we, we're gonna write a role for this guy hmm. so you are solely responsible for all of the fast and furious movies <laughs> for better and worse <laughs> yeah, yes exactly for better or no it's for funny worse. you know ben and matt have talked about how there was a group of guys in the 90s who were always up for the same roles. And they'd see each other and go up against each other in different auditions. You know, it uh, was that your recollection. And like, is that still the same today? Are there a group of guys that are kind of up for all the hot roles today? It's exactly the same today. So who are the guys today? Oh, boy. That's, you know, that's a tough question today. I think we open the landscape up so much wider now because there are so many more actors. And even though I may bring in those five guys, we are much more open. Like when I were, I first started out with Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson. We used to see everybody come through our office from Mark Ruffalo to Liam Neeson. These were guys that were all starting out in the business. And and it was a smaller group of people. Now we're always kind of searching for the latest, greatest, even if we know that 
we want to try to get somebody who has starred in X number of movies and is going to guarantee some sort of name value. I, I don't know that we can attach the same value anymore to somebody who is going to make the movie successful. Well, that brings up the question of whether there is a star problem. And we've talked about that on the show before, and it's sort of known that actors don't bring as much value to movies in particular as they once did. But from your perspective, do you see a star problem out there? Is this something you worry about? Or does this just give you more freedom to cast who you want? I do see a star problem, and it doesn't worry me because I have faith in the actor. I think the role makes the star as well as the acting, and I hope that studios will have more faith in that as time goes by because I really do believe that if you have the right script and the right combination of actors, if people love the movie, it's going to be successful. And that's how you create stars. It's happened so many times. And we've seen that huge movies don't necessarily win Academy Awards or make stars out of the people who are cast in them. And a lot of stars are coming from television now, too. Right. It's just that it's chicken and egg problem. The stars aren't there to bring something to the movie and the movie isn't bringing something to the star as much. Uh, but that's a whole separate industry-wide problem. I agree. I, I think, too, casting has changed dramatically in, over the last 10 to 15 years. Oh, how so? Well, there are so many more layers of people involved in the process and the decision, which really escapes me <laughs> because there's not the same sort of scrutiny or involvement in wardrobe or props or anything. But when it comes to casting, we have to go through so many layers of people. Why is that? And why is that new? Well, I think much more importance is placed on casting now mm -hmm. and finding stars and everybody has an opinion about it. Isn't yeah. it everybody's favorite thing about a movie are the actors for the most part? Well, it also, in the social media age, your choices resonate immediately. People don't wait to see what the movie is before they have an opinion. They see the casting. We're seeing it right now with the Superman casting. It's like, oh, is that a good Jimmy Olsen? Is that a good Lois Lane? You know, I know Rachel Brosnahan from Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Is she going to be a good Lois Lane? That's something that pre-social media, internet, like we didn't even think about that till we saw the trailer. Right. Now everything is judged before it even comes out. So it is a lot. I don't agonize over that a lot because I feel very confident about my choices mm -hmm. and my taste. And I think I've been successful enough and I've earned the right to have the opinions that I have. And I voice them. I'm very vocal. And I think my directors, especially in film, appreciate that. They, they want guidance. They want to know how you know this person works. And that's through seeing a, you know, a body of their work. If somebody's younger, then it's a gut thing. You know, a lot of times I go by my gut feeling. One of the issues in casting that I think has broadened the talent base a lot is the openness to more inclusive casting over the past five to 10 years, whether it's diverse casting or casting women in roles that might have gone to men. From your perspective, do you see that being 
something that has continued to be supported by the studios? Or has there been a pullback on inclusive casting over the past year that I've heard a lot about? Like, oh, we were, we were willing to do that, but now we're a little bit more risk averse. So we're not going to put a black lead in that movie. You know, I, I think it's still very important. And mm-hmm. I think that it's a wonderful change that's happened. And really, I think casting directors have been at the forefront of promoting that for many, many, many years. We always will go through a script and say, why can't this part be a woman instead of a man? Why can't this lawyer be female instead or black? And casting directors have been doing that way before it became prevalent. And there's been no pushback. You know, even Bob Iger yesterday at conference, he said, you know, we're, we have to focus on entertaining. We're not going to be doing as much messaging in our films. And I think for some audiences, they see the diverse casting and they question whether there's a message in it. And I, I've always said, well, if you're telling a good story, it doesn't matter. Sometimes it matters, but yeah. I, I like to be open to all kinds of casting. And then I think eventually when you see people, when actors read, it becomes apparent after a while who's right for the part. And you just don't want something to take you out of the movie. You don't want people to have to think about the casting. Mm. And that's where you have to be thoughtful. And sometimes diversity doesn't work. And you have to know when it does and when it doesn't. And that's why I really don't like a uniform mandate about everything. I think we have to use some intelligence and figure out a shape. Casting is a painting, and you're putting together different colors, different shapes to form the end product. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The strike. We just got through a very long actor strike. You must have had an interesting perspective watching this take place because you're the person hiring all these people. There were lots of discussions about you know, limitations on certain types of auditions and new hoops you have to jump through. What, what was your perspective on the strike? And what are some of the things you think were handled correctly and incorrectly? I think that it was a difficult time for everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. personally, you know, we didn't work for about five months and I am a union member myself. Casting directors are teamsters. Yeah, you're a teamster. I'm you got to be careful around you. I'm very proud of it. So <laughs> we supported the strike. I think that 
sometimes actors are not fully aware of how or why deals get done, get made. We are part of those negotiations from the very beginning. So we see a lot that goes on. What can be negotiated by an agent? What is a union minimum? I don't like that it was litigated in the press so much. I think that that's part of everything we do right now is a lot of media scrutiny ahead of time that makes things much more complicated because you then have public opinion. I'm happy with the things that they got. I I don't know that it was worth the amount of time that all of us were out of work. I understand that AI is an issue, but I think to some degree, everything is negotiable. Most actors have attorneys that negotiate, even kids, you know, when we do yeah, kids no, deals. I know. Well, but the, but the leverage on some of these unknown actors is pretty low. And if there's a deal in front of them that says, sign this, or there's five other guys that will take the job and will sign it, you're going to probably sign it. Yes, uh, they will. And I think that that is, you know, you earn the right to get more as you become more successful. And I Mm -hmm. think that's in any business. But I don't know that in the next year that this strike is going to help people necessarily climb out of that problem. So how will it make it harder for unknown actors to get jobs? What are the dangers potentially? I think that The studios are going to tighten the budgets. I think there's going to be less money in the budgets for actors. And it's going to be a situation where they're going to say, if you don't like it, then we're going to move on. I mean, right now, what I'm seeing is a lot of independent movies that need a star attached. I have not been in that business in a long time. And I'm just kind of embracing it. I'm going along with the changes. And I've had to do that for a long time. You know, the technology has changed and it's changed how we do casting uh, or self-tapes are very prevalent and they help us discover new talent. We can cast internationally from our office, which is a wonderful gift that we get. You don't seem too concerned about the AI issue. You don't worry that the studios, if given a little freedom here, will start to plug in some of these lesser roles with composite AI-generated characters? I am not worried about that, no. Why not? Because I don't see producers and directors, and especially directors, having a tolerance for that. Mm-hmm. We want actors. We want to be entertained by real people that we can feel and see and that we can get to know. And that's how you generate future stars. If you don't have real people or young people starting out in these small roles, how do you create stars of the future? You know, I cast, like, going back to Saving Private Ryan, Brian Cranston was in one tiny scene. And yeah. said a few lines. Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti scene. is in Saving Private Ryan? Yes. There was yep. a curmudgeon in yes, Saving Private Ryan? there was Ryan? a curmudgeon who had a problem with his boots. <laughs> All-time and... curmudgeon. You must, <laughs> yeah. When you see curmudgeon in the script, you must say, oh, is Giamatti available? <laughs> exactly. So um, how do you discover talent? I have a casting director friend who goes to Sundance every year, and she does three or four movies a day and just takes notes on what she sees and what she likes. Like, do you do that or do you just watch a lot of international Netflix shows? Like, what is it? You know, I do a little bit of everything. And so 
I love TV. I love binging TV. That's mm-hmm. been one of the best things that's, things that's happened. Um, I see a lot of people in auditions, and that is how I discover new people. Uh, I do watch a lot of movies. It's a combination of everything. And then I also have people that have worked for me for many years that and we all share information. I don't necessarily like to watch the same things that they like to watch, but you know, we come in on Monday and talk about what we saw over the weekend or what mm-hmm. we're watching now. And we share, you know, the names of people that we really like. And that's basically how it's done. A lot of agents, you know, call yeah, me how managers. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the hounding? I mean, I know a lot of agents and managers listen to the show. What what causes you <laughs> to take note of a pitch? Well, some of it is building trust with an mm-hmm. agent or a manager. We have a relationship over a long period of time, and I know that they have great taste. They're always sending me good actors. The biggest difference in managers and agents now is that they used to really curate people's careers. The best agents and managers are casting directors themselves. They know how to cast their clients for the right part. So in other words, they're not just sending you a laundry list. When I get a laundry list of actors from a big agency of all their, for my female, everybody who's 20 to 50, I go, what is this? Delete, delete. Exactly. So when the right person is targeted, then I really embrace that. And I embrace that agent as someone who helps me in the process. I don't look at them as the enemy. I, I really do love a lot of agents and managers who have great talent and, and we work together. And I will tell a lot of young agents who make the mistake of giving a laundry list, look, this is the relationship we will have if you do this. Right. And honestly, you know, some of it is a mandate from, you know, the higher ups and the agencies that you have to send these people to the casting director. And I don't think any of us who cast appreciate that. How much do you look at social media profiles these days? I mean, if someone is auditioning for a side character and has 5 million followers on TikTok, are you more inclined to cast that person or is it? I mean, even let, no. assuming they're talented, if there's two talented people next to each other, one has a huge following, one doesn't. No, I don't look at that. You don't at all? No, not really. I mean, sometimes it's brought to my attention. Yeah, the studios by, must request like, hey, this person could help us. Sometimes they do. But uh, honestly, I'm very old school in that way. Talent to me wins out every time. And uh, that's what I'm looking for. I, I want the best actor. So... Yes, sometimes I guess it comes into play. And I think that's more of a studio um, concern than it is my concern. And if that's what we have to do, I, you know, then I guess it's up to the director and producer to decide that that's what they want. But you're not on TikTok scrolling looking for a look. I am not. (laughs) (laughs) I don't Uh, have enough time for that. But yeah, you, you know, listen though, you know, you could discover people anywhere. Like, sure. like producer producer Craig, what would you do with Craig? What would yeah. you do with Craig? Craig well, Craig Craig, if they're gonna do top another top gun and they need a a, a fighter pilot, maybe Miles Teller has a younger, funny brother. Craig could be your guy. <laughs> yeah, he could. I'll 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 give him a chance to audition. <laughs> Craig, your headshot is good, prepared. Correct? Right. Exactly. Send it over, Craig. All right. Are you good at predicting? which of your ensembles become stars? Like if I laid out 
the Top Gun Maverick cast or one of these other movies you've done, are you good at saying that this person will be a star? This person is going to you know, be a character actor and maybe not have the trajectory. You know, I think so. I do feel like I am good at that. And I think it too, if people, <laughs> you know, kind of take my advice and, yeah. you know, heed my experience and my gut feelings on people that we will have success. Is it that simple? Or are there mechanics and process things that you see that I don't? There's both, but sometimes it is just somebody, somebody doesn't have to be the best actor, but they have that certain something. You see it, you feel it, it's tangible in the room. And I think that's what makes a star. You can get better as you go along if you're not the best actor, but if you don't have that thing, then maybe you'll be a great working actor, but you may not become a movie star. Right. You tend to work with a lot of the same filmmakers. I got to ask, what is it like casting with Michael Bay? <laughs> like, People is he like, love him, love him, not hot enough. Love you her, know, not hot enough. No, he's not like that. Uh, honestly, I love Michael. And that wasn't always true. And he knows this. It was like, you know, the first movie we did together, which was The Island. I was like, I never want to work with this director again. I actually like that movie. People crap on that movie. I think it's fun. I like it too. But he and I... We have a great collaboration. And also, I am not afraid of him. And I don't take his, right. you know, so, and he trusts me. I think part of the reason that I work with the same directors over and over again is because I am very honest with them about how I feel. If I like somebody or if I don't, who I fight for, who I don't. And Michael and I sit in a room together and we go through lists and he's always, what do you think? Who do you like? And we just go through it. And it's just the two of us. So I enjoy working with him. And he's not really as people perceive him to be. Okay. Craig, you got a question? Craig's very interested in this. We got a real live casting director here. Uh, <laughs> what would you like to ask her? I wanted to ask if, if casting for comedies is getting harder. You know, we used to have the groups of kind of butts and seats comedy stars, like the Apatow crew of Jonah Hill and Seth Rogen and all those people. Ten years before that, we had Will Ferrell and Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler. Why do you think movie star or, or comedy movie stars are harder to find now? Do you think they're harder to find now? Is the well to choose from too large because of social media? Um, what are your thoughts on casting comedy stars? Because it seems like no one has really broken through lately. I think they're making less comedies. You know, I, I mean, I think if there were more comedic movies, we would have more comedy movie stars. But what platform is there for them to go on except for, you know, uh, Netflix or it, it's it's sad. And people want to see comedies. I wish they would make more. We can discover more actors, more comedians than ever before because of YouTube or TikTok platforms that they can showcase themselves on. It's just where is the product for them to become famous from or to get an audience from? Where well, is that it? gets to the question of how you make stars. And it seems like that does worry you, that the fragmentation of the culture and the streaming boom and the, the lack of these big breakout movies and theaters, that that is trickling down to the casting process and the star-making process. But it definitely makes our task more difficult in that it's not clear 
who that person is necessarily. Um, we're counting on studios and production companies to have faith in the process and that when we make a good product, we are going to create those movie stars. Well, that sounds at least a little bit optimistic, so that's good. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having me. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, we're going to talk about box office, but I got my Spotify for podcasters wrapped issue yesterday uh, with all of these stats from the show. We had a pretty good year. That's right. Yeah. Podcast hosts now can see, and this is not an ad for Spotify, <laughs> I promise, but yeah, po po podcast hosts can now see a lot of the data of their shows, which is cool. That is cool. Uh, we are up 124% in listeners, 210% mm -hmm. in streams, 154% in followers. We also made the Spotify curated list of the top episodes of the year. They picked the initial interview with Duncan Crabtree Ireland at SAG-AFTRA as one of their top episodes, which is nice. They also told us which of our episodes was the most listened to. Was that a shock to you? No, I already knew that based on looking at the data. It was the episode about the Scooter Braun mess. Where yes. It was easily by far our most listened to episode. It's actually how we gained 25% of our new listeners of 2023 started with that episode. Oh my God, that is hilarious. That is that is actually very funny. Maybe we should do a follow-up. Uh, the Swifties will love it. All right, but that is not what we're talking about. Great year. Thank you to all the listeners. Uh, we're very happy with the, the growth of the show, way beyond what I ever thought this show, the audience it would reach. So thank you very much. But now let's get to the prediction because we got a Beyonce movie, Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. The tracking for this movie, it's actually come down a little bit over the last couple of days. It's at about 17, 18 million. And Taylor is open to 90 plus, right? Taylor Swift, 93 million. Now we are not comparing the two of them. Very different audiences, very different types of films. Beyonce is, is getting reviews that are like through the roof. Whereas the Taylor reviews were good, but it's like, hey, this is this well, is what it is. It's a concert Beyonce's film. is more than just a concert film, right? It's yes, an actual exactly. documentary. Totally. And uh, I think her fans are going to love it. But I think the tracking is probably underestimating her fans. Uh, I think this is probably going to outgross the tracking. Uh, if it's at 17, I'm going to take the over on that. I think I would agree with you. This feels pretty low, especially, I mean, there's nothing going on this weekend in the box office. Well, this is typically one of the worst weekends of the year at the box office. This weekend and next weekend, as people are out doing holiday shopping and traveling and getting work done. Like, it's not a huge weekend. So Yeah, but these are going to be like 20-year-olds going to see this movie. They're not doing Christmas shopping. 20-year-olds? Beyonce's fans are a little bit older than that now. I Whatever, 20, 30-year-old? This is a younger audience. It is, and there's going to be a big after-church crowd, I think, on Sunday. So maybe the forecasting is off. You know, a lot of the people thought Taylor would actually do a lot bigger than 93, including myself and Lucas. And then it came down over the weekend, whereas, you know, because her fans were there and showed up and bought tickets in advance, but there wasn't a lot of walk-up business. I think they're hoping that this movie will have more walk-up business. People just kind of out shopping and being like, oh yeah, let's see the Beyonce movie. And uh, we'll see if that, if that happens. But I'm going to hesitantly say, I'll take the over. I think I agree with you. Uh, There's a Godzilla movie in theaters for some reason. The only thing that's working against it, and I know I say this all the time, but it's two hours and 48 minutes. Yeah. These are all too long. I know. It is. But you know what? If you're into Beyonce... It's as long as Napoleon. Oh, God, I mean, don't even get me started on Napoleon, which I saw. It's like 2.38, something like that. It feels like five hours. Yeah. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank our guest, 
Denise Chamion. I want to thank producer Craig and his new headshots. I want to thank Jesse Lopez, our editor. And I want to thank you. We will see you tomorrow. Thank you.